I'm Brian. Grace to be one of the pastors that serves in the life of the church, and I'm about to speak to you uh, from the scriptures. Most weeks I get a chance to do that in North Andover, but this week I get to hang out with you guys, so it's a joy to do it with you. Uh, but before we do anything else, would you pray with me? Father, your streams of mercy are never ceasing. And your mercies are new every single day because you knew people like me and people like us together in here would need them to be new every single day. And so I pray you'd come and be pleased to pour out your spirit upon us. That you would revive us, you would renew us, that you would expose idolatry and the false things that our hearts yearn for, looking for meaning and satisfaction and joy and salvation in. God, do the gentle, necessary work of cutting open our hearts to heal us. Father, may we, may we be willing to receive that work, that deep work of the Spirit in our lives. We look to a beautiful text of Scripture this morning, and I pray you'd have your way in us and through us for your glory and our joy and the joy of many people that you are sending us to in the everyday stuff of life. I pray you'd hear my prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're actually going to look back up into Isaiah 43 and, and kind of look at a huge kind of landscape of Scripture this morning. Ken read to us a little hinge, hinge verse for us, hinge section upon which we'll, we'll focus on as well. But um, I came to this conclusion late uh, a couple of weeks ago as I was kind of ripping through this and preparing for this. And it was this. Um, listen, I got nothing, nothing for you, nothing cute for you. I got no cute illustrations for you. Um, I'm off the hook, number one. I'm not that funny, so I'm off the hook. I got nothing funny for you. I'm back and I'm funny looking and I'm sweating profusely, so you might get a kick out of that. Um, I'm not that funny, so don't expect anything that funny other than what you look at up here. Uh, but what I do have, by the grace of God, is a text of scripture that will cut deeply. And when I say cut deeply, I don't mean in a punishing way, but in a healing way. By the grace of God, through his spirit, doing his good work in us and through us, It'll be meant to do a healing work in me and in you. Because here's the truth and the reality. If you and I, as followers of Jesus, for those of us in here who pro profess Jesus and follow Jesus, uh, if we're not continually being floored by the gospel, the good news of God's grace to undeserving sinners, do you know what this becomes, what we're doing here every single Sunday? This thing becomes routine. This thing becomes boring, just to be honest. It becomes boring. It can become joyless. It, beco it becomes just dutiful. It becomes some sort of obligatory routine that we go through week in and week out where we sing the same songs, we cock our hands in the air thinking that, that, that that's what we're supposed to do or pray a certain way. Um, we sit and we listen in a nice, wonderful, peaceful way. We listen to what's being set up there. But we do it all in order to appease a God who we feel as though just wants our lip service and our attendance, and that will be good enough. And that's tiresome, to be honest with you. If you've been there, and I've been there at times, it's tiresome and it's exhausting just to get up and do that routine week in and week out with no joy and no passion in the belly and nothing stirring the pot deep in the depth of our soul that actually motivates us to be here. And so here it is. If I do my job well this morning, by God's grace, you and I will see that I, we have a need for, for renewal. We'll, we have a need for revived souls so that we can do what we do every single week, worshiping together and being sent out of this place, proclaiming in word and deed, we could do that well. Under God's grace, being influenced and empowered by God's spirit as he does a work in us to remember, 
causing us to remember and return to Jesus week in and week out as we gather every single week. Because that's the posture. Even as we're sent out of this place, we'll need revived souls. We'll need renewed, renewed souls deep within the depth of our heart because that is always the posture of a spirit-powered people. A people who don't go out of obligation, but a people who go being refreshed and renewed and revived as the Spirit is doing a good work deep in our hearts. That is always the posture of a spirit-empowered people. But there's a problem, and it's existed since the time of Isaiah and since the people of God way back when. But there's a solution as well, and there's a reason for that solution. So those are the three things we're going to consider this morning as we, as we dig into Isaiah, our boy Isaiah. Right? The problem, the solution, and the reason. You ready to go? You ready to do this? I'm ready. Let's make this happen. Here we go. Number one, the problem. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a device, or there's a hardback black uh, Bible or red one or green one, I don't know what the color is, to be honest with you, but there's a hardback Bible in front of you. Grab it, open it up, just go right to the middle of the book, pretty much. You'll land on Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 43, verses 22 to 24. Isaiah 43, 22 to 24, you can follow along, you can listen to me. Isaiah says this, as we look at the problem. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have brought me your sheep and your burnt offerings, or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, or wearied you with frankincense. But you have brought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and you've wearied me with your iniquities. So God's laying down an ind another indictment upon his people here. And it's this, essentially. It's not as though that uh, they didn't know how to worship, but the worship that they were bringing, it wasn't even necessarily about the content of what they were bringing and what they were doing. But it was their weariness in worship that God says is the problem, the wicked big problem. Now, we're not talking about a people who didn't know how to worship because God had laid out instructions earlier in the Old Testament. If you go way back into the book of Leviticus, fun reading, good summertime reading, end of the summer reading, if you want some good reading, read the book of Leviticus, fun stuff. You go back into Leviticus and God had laid out instructions on how the people of God were to worship and to bring their sacrifices. And even on special occasions, uh, God didn't withhold his instruction for his people. For example, if you go into 2 Chronicles chapter 7, King Solomon was, was told, hey, when you come to worship, here's what I want you to bring. I want you to bring 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now, I know North Andover is big on sheep. They have this sheep. You could probably find that many sheep in North Andover if you ever get told to do that. But the problem for the people of God back then was not the content. It was never about the content or what they were doing in worship, but it was all about the complacency of the heart. The motivations in their heart that was causing them to worship. And they were coming because of their complacency and their weariness. They were coming and their worship was now a burden. Not only to them, but it was a burden to God as well. And that was never the intent of God for his people to worship with a burden. Worship was always intended for the people of God to be free. To be joyful. As they remembered and they returned to their God and their Savior and their Rescuer once again. But this was part of Israel's history, part of the people of God's history. They would treat worship oftentimes as a routine, or you could say a mechanism, uh, in order to try and control God or to try and put God uh, into their debt. Right? And so this is even a problem as you skip over to the New Testament. So if you do some New Testament reading, Jesus is hanging out, and he's, he's talking to these people, and, and he tells a story in Luke 15. It's a story of two lost sons. 
We, we know it is the, the story of the prodigal son, but there's two lost sons there. And you've got the story of the elder brother and his dialogue with his dad, right? And the, old, the younger son had gone out, he pottied it up like it was 1990, whatever, and he comes back home, all beat up, broken down from, from, from getting kicked around and doing his own thing, and he comes home, and the father throws a huge potty, right? Big blast, right? Kill the fattened calf, the whole town's there, hooping and hollering and celebrating. But the, young, the older brother's mad, and he's angry. And the, the dad goes out to entreat him and says, hey, come on in, your young brother. And he's mad because here's the deal. All these years I've been serving you, all of these years I've done X, Y, and Z, I've followed every single rule. I haven't squandered your wealth. I haven't spit all over your name. I haven't trampled all over the family inheritance. And yet here I am, working and obeying, working and obeying, doing everything I was supposed to do. And yet where's my fattened calf? Where's my potty? Where's the town for me, right? Throwing a big bash over all the work that I've done. This is typically the operating principle of religion. When we, when we operate or we worship from a place of religion, religion, when it comes to worshiping, will often say, uh, if I do this, or if I do that, or if I offer this, then God will owe me. If I do this or I do that, then God will owe me. But you give that enough time, if you operate from that place, and I have in my own life, you give that enough time, you know what winds up happening over a period of time? That, worshiping and attending and being a part of the people of God and going through the motions from that mindset and that principle is exhausting. It's burdensome and it's tiresome and it's joyless and it just becomes a duty and it just becomes a routine and it just feels obligatory, but there's no joy and there's absolutely no life in it, and you wind up becoming miserable, right? For you and I to lug week after week our, our bodies into a building in order to kind of sing the songs and send it to some guy who's yelling at you each and every week from the scriptures, right? To just do that from a place of obligation is burdensome, is weary. For the people of God to show up each and every week to remember God's promises, to drink from the deep well of his grace and mercy shown to us and to celebrate the beautiful hope that we have in Jesus now and in the future. For us to do that with no care and no desire and no passion and no fire in the belly. And when I say that, I don't mean like people just like, like hanging from the chandeliers and like doing cotwheels and like, you know, jumping up and down and flopping on the ground like fish out of water and just screaming and yelling and like pom-poms around and waving around. Like I'm not talking about, that's not necessarily passion. But something's stirring you in the soul, some sort of truth that just hits you right spot on in the depth of your soul that motivates you and causes you to respond with passion, causes you to respond with joy or with gratitude with thanksgiving, with praises, declaring that truth that's within you, that's changing you. For you and I not to do that and to just to kind of go through the motions is not only miserable for you and I to do week in and week out, but it's miserable to God, Isaiah says. Well, it's a burden to him, he says in chapter 43. So everybody loses out on the whole deal. Everybody's losing out. The question is, is so what is this revealing to us about God himself? What does this show us about God. The answer is this. God never just wants from you or I or his people even back then a quote-unquote, uh, bring me 200,000 sacrifices and just deal with it approach. He wants worship to be freeing. He wants worship to be a joy for his people. You know, even as he's laying down the Old Testament sacrificial system, 
that's never just the end in itself, but it points to something so much more better, so much more beautiful, so much more truer, so much more freeing. It points to the day when Jesus Christ would absorb the burden of all of our sin. He would become the sacrificial lamb. He would become the scapegoat, taking away the sins of the world, all of our flaws, all of our weak attempts to worship. Jesus Christ absorbs them on the cross because he, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, comes not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, many undeserving sinners like me and like you. And it's really mind-blowing. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 25. God identifies himself to his people this way. Verse 25. Emphatically, God declares, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. So God says, I'm the one who blots out your transgressions and your sins. I'm the one who remembers them no more. I don't remember your sins. I don't remember your history. I don't remember the catalog of things that you've done or the good things you should have done that you didn't do or the good things that you did do but with ill motivation. Even when Satan, right, I picture it this way, even when Satan, the accuser himself, tries to approach God, something to the effect of like this, right? Hey, look at Brian. God, check out Brian down there again. You see it? He blew it again. You, he's been doing the same thing for 13 years now. Are you kidding me? Look at what he did again. Can you believe that he turned his back on you again? Can you believe that he's making this thing more important than you? Can you believe that he's holding on to this thing in his heart? before you and God's response I picture is something to this effect no no I don't remember but what I do seem to remember is the righteousness of my son Jesus what I do seem to remember Satan pal is my beloved son Jesus who has credited his righteousness to Brian undeservingly but graciously because he chose to love him I'm not saying your facts are wrong pal but you don't have the whole story straight. You have an incomplete story there because it's never about my sins. It's never just about your sins, but it's about Christ's record for your sins. And nothing that you, are do, you and I are ever will do, it's always about Jesus and his righteousness and what he's done for you graciously, undeserving, because it's never about us, but it's all about him, always about him. That's the grace of God. That's God. That's the way of God. And really, it's the pathway to renewal. It's the pathway to revival for the people of God. But your heart, but my heart, but the human heart does not like grace. We don't always want grace. We don't always like the concept of grace. And we kind of see that irony a little bit as you look at verse 26 and 43. Glance at it real quick. God says, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Go ahead, set forth your case that you may be proved right. So basically it's, hey, listen, go ahead. You, you have something? Is there anything in your record right now that would merit my grace and my favor upon you and my blessing upon you? Is there anything you've done? Go ahead, check out like a church record from the last 52 weeks. Did you nail it 52 weeks out of 52 weeks? Congratulations. What about the Monday through Saturday stuff? How you doing there? How's your heart in that stuff? Show me something. Give me something. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's do a little comparison here. Because there's nothing. There's nothing 
there. And verse 27, actually, if you skip down, verse 27 actually reminds us that we're actually all doomed. Where all of us are doomed, right down through our familial roots, through our descendants, right? Verse 27, your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. You see that word, utter destruction, in verse 20? It's the same thing. You go back to Joshua 6. God told his people to go into the land of Canaan and, and destroy the Canaanites. Destroy, utterly, total judgment. That's the same word there. Utter destruction. Total judgment. So this is a picture of our problem, right? That our worship, we turn the beautiful means of grace, freedom-filled worship into dutiful, burdensome, weary obligation and routine. Joyless routine. And it's burdensome to you and it's burdensome to God. But there's a solution. That's second. There's a solution to this. Look at Isaiah 44, the first two verses. But now, hold on, yo, time out. Right, Brad Stevens, call him time out real quick. But now is the turning point of grace. It's, the, it's, the, it's God's action step of grace. When you see but now, there's God in his grace once again to his people who have refused him or who have ignored him or have turned to other things. There's God's grace in action once again. Again, but now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, whom I've chosen, the Lord who made you, who formed you, who will help you. There he is. We are his servants. We've been formed by him. We've been chosen by him. He will help us. Do you know what God's solution is for wearisome refusal of grace? It's more grace. It's more grace to our hardened refusal of grace. You go back to verse 28, chapter 43, it says, I will profane judgment there. Now you skip over to verse uh, 4, chapter, three, uh, chapter 44, verse 3. It says, now I will pour. God's grace now becomes, I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants. I will usher in renewal. I will bring more grace to you. Because this is the solution and promise to the people of God. It's for him to generously pour himself out on people in such a way that they would become so saturated with him and so engulfed by his grace to them. The question becomes, like, do you wind up walking into this place this morning and is your soul thirsty in some way? Right? Do you find yourself, maybe, maybe you've been doing the church thing for a while, do you find yourself kind of on the dry ground of just religion, operating in religion? where you're kind of going through the motions and you're trying to like sing a little bit more and raise your hands a little bit higher and yell a little bit more and pray a little bit more emphatically in hopes that something will change, right? Which I think is like the definition of insanity, like doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, hoping for another result. Do you find yourself just, just dry, just empty, having turned to all types of different things, looking for hope, looking for meaning, looking for satisfaction, and yet find yourself thirsty? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Because what God has for you is full and overflowing satisfaction in him, complete satisfaction in him. But here's the thing, it won't be found anywhere else. You will never, ever be able to find it in anything else, only in him. And you and I are privileged in this day and age. Over 2,000 years ago, God, by his grace, through his spirit, was pleased to pour himself out at Pentecost 
upon a broken, sinful, but thirsty group of people. And they were empowered then in the fullness of the Spirit, receiving His reviving grace to go and be empowered to be the people of God in the world for what they had for them. And for you and I, even today, we are graced to see, sit in a day and age where God still continues to move that way. Where the promise of His Spirit to be poured out upon His people in renewing grace is available for thirsty souls who want Him. He continues to do that upon people who are dry and who are empty from the cultural idols and from the cultural lies of consumerism and materialism and individualism, which, by the way, have wreaked havoc on the church for years, for years, the church in general. What's the promise that God's throwing down here? Right? So is the promise for God just to kind of show up and like make, make church more fun, like create a better church service, like slamming music, playing the songs that I like? Right? Or to get a guy up here or a person up here who, who will preach and who makes me laugh and, 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 and makes me feel good about myself. And, you know, is, is that the promise? Or is the promise to, for God and His Spirit and His grace to be generously poured out so that we get everything that we want? Is it essentially the promise for God to show up and become our divine caterer for us, giving us what we want and meeting all of our preferences? Isaiah 44. Here's the promise. Verse 3 and 4, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Right? This one will say on the Lord's, another one will call on the name of Jacob, and another one will write on his hand the Lord's and the name himself by the name of Israel. No, the promises for revival, the promises for renewal, the promises for new growth. The promises for new life, the promises for new momentum towards God's purpose for us and his goals for us. And it comes down to this, wicked big sinners now become wicked big believers who under the influence of the Spirit become people who are willing to stand up boldly and declare, hey, I'm, I'm with God. Jesus has got me, even in the face of consumerism in the face of materialism and all the other isms of our culture in this day and age, people become willing to boldly declare that I am his and he is mine, that this is what God has done for me. Grace will break through and it will bring a reviving power that changes everything that starts with my heart, starts with your heart, and starts with us collectively. So the last question is that, so, so why would God go through all of this? Like, what's the reason? That's the third thing we want to consider, the reason. Look at 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will come. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not of any. Two things. First, God lays down the gauntlet upon all other gods that vie for our human allegiance and Worship. So he's emphatically proving that he is absolutely powerful and exclusive over all other worthless places that our hearts tend to worship, where we seek to find joy in. And he does it not to stifle our joy, 
but he does it to increase our joy in him because he is graciously and he is stubbornly insistent that he is the only one capable of bringing about transformation in a person's life. And it's all for his glory and our joy. All for his glory and our joy. Secondly, he reveals our purpose, or we could say our mission. We get this kicked around. Our mission, right? Verse 44, verse 8, says this. And you are my witnesses. So here's what it comes down to. Uh, here's the ultimate reason where you and I find ourselves in the places we exist even right now. So the places you live, the homes you live in, the family environments you, you're surrounded with, your workplace environment, uh, the town, the zip code you live in, the people that you're surrounded with day in and day out who annoy you, right? You are where you are for a specific reason. There is no accident to that. Right, so think about this. Acts 17, Paul's speaking on Mars Hill, and he speaks to the people there, and he says, it's God who's allotted and determined our specific boundaries in this season of life, which means this, you are where you are by no accident. It's God who's determined your specific allotment and boundaries. And he says, and the people that are around you, essentially, are not far from God. And the question's why. Like, what do you mean they're not far from God? It's because you are there. It's because you occupy the space that God has placed you in specifically for a reason. You are there for a reason, and people are not far from, from God because you, having been graced by God being pleased to reveal his son Jesus and his work on the cross to you, and having transformed you and equipped you and empowered you with the Spirit now, people aren't far from the grace of God because you're there, day in and day out, in your cubicle or in your office or in whatever environment you find yourself in because you know and you are fearless witnesses to the living proof that God can satisfy, alone can satisfy a thirsty soul. He can. But you know this, right? People reject Christianity, aren't interested in it. Young people leaving the church in droves as soon as they get the diploma, right? Rejecting Christianity. I think Nietzsche, the, the famous German philosopher, he kind of summed it up well this way. When he, when he stated his reason for rejecting Christianity, he said this, uh, the reason I rejected Christianity was because I never saw my father's church ever enjoying themselves. I never saw my father's church ever enjoying themselves. There is nothing more disheartening than joyless Christianity in a joyless church. And so the question becomes why? Like why does this happen? Why does church and Christianity become a joyless thing? Why does worship become wearisome? Why does it become joyless routine? Why do God's people fail to live as fearless witnesses where they've been placed? And if you were to read through verses 9 through 20 in chapter 44, Isaiah kind of flips the script, and he gives a picture of idolatry. Idolatry. So the question is, so what's idolatry? Because I've heard that idol word kicked around before, like American Idol. I think that just went off the air last year, right? People love that show. Right? So, and I've had idols, and you've had idols growing up, people we looked up to and revered. Right? And so culture has spun that word into a positive thing. But what is the meaning of idols and idolatry? And Tim Keller gives this good description. He says, idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, or anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It's idolatry that sucks the joy 
out of our life. It makes worship wearisome. It's why over and over and over again, Isaiah comes back to the problem of idolatry because idols are the problem, are the core problem of the people of God, right? Think about this for a second. If there is one magnificent God who is the creator of everyone and everything, and you and I aren't experiencing his reviving grace in our lives, it's because there is some sort of idol blocking the pipeline. You feel me? There's something blocking the pipeline from you receiving the grace of Jesus and actually allowing it to be poured back out from your praises and your gratitude in your life. So um, as the gospel is proclaimed or as you remember the grace of God to you, if there's some sort of idol blocking you up, what often happens is instead of the, the joy of the gospel streams of water being poured into you and then being poured right back out through you through praise and through gratitude and through service to others, what happens is if there's an idol block in the pipeline, the gospel streams of joy are tried to attempted to be poured into you, but what happens is since there's a blockage, the sewerage of hell and the sewerage of sin just comes flying right back out at us. And out comes anger and resentment and frustration and animosity and pride and arrogance because the thing that's blocking us in our pipeline is not being met. It's not satisfying us. It's not bringing us true joy in our lives. Here's, here's the example, one example for you, right? So the best way I can try to attempt to show you this is in my own life. So by the grace of God, I have an incredible story, right? So 12 and a half years ago, Jesus met me, and I've been clean from heroin addiction for 12 and a half years, right? And so in that 12 and a half years, uh, I've been clean from heroin addiction. Instead of the heroin addiction burying me, Jesus was pleased to reveal his grace to me and raise me to new life instead. And now he's changed me, and he's continuing to change me. He's blessed me with an amazing wife, Danielle, my kids, Dylan, Lucas, and Olivia. Amazing. And he's given me a, little, a few gifts to be able to do some work for him in the world. But here's what winds up happening sometimes for me. I can easily derive from that story a sense of meaning and significance and comfort and security and salvation from that story, as at times I have, by the way. I have done this because I drift into idolatry, and so do you. I start to say, man, you know what? 12 and a half, man, look at all the hard work I did. Man, yeah, you, you know what? I, I do have a pretty incredible story. Man, I could tote that thing around, and people could think I'm something special in my own life, and people could look up to, you know, people want to ask you to speak or do something. Like, well, yeah, look, look at all the hard work I did. This is because my, my, John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. It just constantly is pumping out idol after idol, something to revere, something to find affection in other than God. And this is what my own human heart does from time the time looking to derive some sort of meaning from that story as though I've done it. So the question is this, how do we change this? How do we change? Isaiah 44, 21 to 23. Isaiah says this, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In the gospel, the good news, we have promises that go way beyond our human minds can even fathom. 
And the only way that you and I begin to see and taste the realities and the truths of that is by remembering Christ, our Redeemer. Christ, the one who on the cross said, I thirst, who thirsted and suffered and absorbed the wrath of all our sin and all our idolatry so that our thirsty souls could once and for all be satisfied in him. And then Isaiah says, remember, remember your, your Redeemer, remember the one who's blotted out your sins, and then return to him. Return to Jesus, the one who offers you a way better story than the one you're pursuing apart from him. So there it is. It's remember and it's return. And here's the challenge this morning. As we leave from this place, let go of your idols. What are they? What are the things that you daydream about in your solitude? Because that's your worship. That's your God. That's your idol. Let go of it. And flee to God instead of fleeing from him when he pursues you to that other thing you're looking for meaning in. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's your job, whether it's your reputation, whether it's your zip code. Whatever it is. Because the life you and I deeply long for, and really the life that this church deeply longs for, only comes from God in Christ through the pouring out of the Spirit. And here's the reality, friend. You and I don't deserve it. And you and I can't control it. But the only thing we can do is let go of our idols and open our hands to receive his reviving grace with open hands of faith. And so here's my prayer for you as I step off this thing this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, come and revive us in your renewing grace once again.